Okay, let's uh, begin then with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege of meeting like this. We thank you for life in Christ that joins us to men and women who have gone through uh, this world in the past. We thank you for the witness of this woman uh, to now 2,000 years ago. And we do pray as we think about her life and that of her husband, Aquila, that you would use it not only to inform our minds, but also to speak to our lives, challenge our hearts, and that in doing so, you might be glorified. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your uh, Bibles, Acts 18, verses 1 to 3. And I did have a PowerPoint, but I forgot my um, flash drive, and I forgot my computer. So anyway, so hopefully, go from this point forward, I will... Uh, PowerPoint presentations because it it helps. Uh, the one that I wanted to give you in tonight was a map. Um, over the years, I've learned that uh, I assumed everybody knows what Europe looks like, where Rome is, where Corinth is, where Ephesus was, Corinth and Ephesus were, and uh, the reality is people don't, and uh, it is helpful. So anyway, because we will be talking a little bit about geographical movement. But anyway, let's uh, jump in then, Acts 18 and 1 to 3. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is a typical text in uh, the book of Acts where Luke uh, introduces people who uh, played a key role in, uh, in this case, Paul's life. Um, Paul has kind of occupied his attention from Acts 13 onwards. He's uh, mentioned Paul first in his uh, conversion back in Acts chapter 9. It's a conversion account that he actually repeats three times, uh, which is very, I find fascinating, uh, because one of the things that an ancient writer always had to consider was um, the amount of paper, or basically papyrus, that he had. And he only had a limited amount. Uh, these would have originally been written on papyrus, and it would have been a papyrus scroll. And you had about 32 pages in that papyrus scroll that would be stitched together. And then at both ends, they would be stitched onto a, a wooden dowel so you could roll it up. And um, 32 feet was a big book. Uh, Luke and Acts are both about 32 feet. And they're both the largest books in the New Testament. Um, one of the librarians at the great library in Alexandria said on one occasion, a big book is a big nuisance uh, because it, it was heavy. And uh, you'd have to unroll a fair amount to find whatever the spot you were looking for. And so an author is always conscious that he's only got so much space. And Luke tells the story of Paul's conversion three times. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. And each time it gets bigger. Uh, we learn more about the conversion experience. 
Uh, Luke could easily have said, and Paul told them how he came to Christ, but he doesn't. Um, so obviously, Paul is a very important figure uh, for Luke, and because we believe, and rightly so, that Luke is writing Holy Scripture, he's inspired by the Spirit, it's obvious that Paul's experience, his conversion, his early ministry, is absolutely foundational to the life of the church in these early years. And um, it's very easy, and I'm sure Paul's, well, I know Paul's had thousands and probably even maybe upwards of hundreds of thousands of books written about him. And it's very easy to think, okay, Paul, his theology, his life, his experiences, and forget that Paul was surrounded by a body of men and women who the historians call the Pauline circle. And these were men, basically, mostly men, without whom Paul could never have done anything, in one sense. Um, Paul relied upon a host of men and some women uh, to accomplish the goals that God had called him to on that road to Damascus. Um, people whose names you do know, but probably you don't often give a lot of thought to. Uh, Timothy, who was probably about um, 16, 17 when Paul met him. Um, he meets him in uh, Acts chapter 16, um, probably somewhere around 47 AD, so about 14 years or so after the death and resurrection of Christ. And um, the brother is in the church where uh, Timothy is, and it's not clear whether it's in a place called Derby or Lystra. Um, they recommend him. They, they have confidence in him. That uh, Paul takes a liking to him is convinced that this man can help him. And uh, Timothy basically trudges around the Mediterranean with Paul for the next 30 years and uh, gives up whatever ambitions he might have had as a young man. And I'm sure he had number. Uh, they are all put to the side to work with Paul. And then uh, Titus and Trophimus and Tychicus, a variety of people who, we, as I say, we hardly give a thought to but are absolutely essential to Paul's accomplishment of the ministry that he does. It's a reminder to us that um, uh, the human tendency is to latch onto one key figure um, in the Reformation. You know, I'm teaching the Reformation at Redeemer University right now, and uh, we've done a whole lecture on, we did two lectures on Luther, we've done two on Calvin, but I was pointing out to them, um, Calvin's ministry is absolutely tied to uh, Pierre Verey. And uh, I didn't ask the students if they'd ever heard of him. I suspect they didn't. Uh, or Guillaume Farel. In fact, a book came out recently, well, within the last few years, uh, on, it's called The Friends of Calvin. And there were like 30 chapters in there, and half of them I had never heard of. And I'm a, I'm a historian of this era to some degree. And it's just a reminder to us that God uses friends and groups of people, not just one individual. It's groups of men and women who are covenanted together to accomplish the task that whatever God has called them for their generation. And Aquila and Priscilla fall into that category. They're part of this Pauline circle. Paul meets them here. The year is around 49 AD. We can pinpoint it because we have a, a, an item there. Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And we know that from other external uh, Roman historical sources, particularly a man named 
Suetonius, <clears throat> that this took place around the year 49. Uh, there is an earlier possibility, which is too early. Apparently, uh, Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome at least twice. Uh, he kicked a number of them out in 41, and then he kicked another number out in 49. And it's usually thought it's 49. And um, uh, Suetonius also tells us, and Suetonius' name is spelled S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S, that it was because of Crestus that these Jews were kicked out. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Well, that's very close to Christus, which is the Latin name for Christ. And um, students of this particular portion of God's word uh, I've often argued that uh, there possibly were riots in Rome with the first preaching of the gospel, uh, which is not at all uh, an impossibility. In fact, it's, a, it's quite likely. You read through the book of Acts, and there's riots all over the place. Uh, you know, there's riots in Derby, Lystra, Pisidian Antioch, riots in Ephesus. We're going to talk about that riot in a, in a few minutes. Um, wherever the gospel's preached. And so it's not surprising that there might have been disturbances in the Jewish community. The Jewish community was pretty large in Rome. It was around 25 to 30,000 people. And so most scholars believe that when it says he had commanded all the Jews, that uh, Luke is using the word all as kind of a generic. It doesn't mean literally all. Um, and there's a number of places in the New Testament where all is used this way. For instance... Um, John the Baptist will be preaching, and uh, it says, all Jerusalem went out to hear him. Well, not everybody in Jerusalem went out, but large numbers went out. Or you might use this word this way. You know, you're, you may be at a function, some sort of celebration, and somebody asks you, so who was there? Well, everybody was there. <laughs> you know, everybody you and I know and regard as part of our circle of friends, they were all there, but you weren't there, obviously. And uh, so we, we use the word generically, and we often don't use it uh, to mean absolutely, literally everyone. And the Bible does the same sometimes like that. And so uh, probably it was the ringleaders, so-called from the Roman point of view, uh, Jewish protagonists against the gospel, and Priscilla and Aquila are probably leaders in that church, and they get kicked out. And... Uh, they end up coming to Corinth, and so Rome is halfway down Italy, and I assume you know Italy, the boot, that juts down into the Mediterranean, and the next major landmass that comes down from Europe is Greece. And Greece is divided into two sections. There is the, what we call mainland Greece. Uh, Athens is there, uh, right at the end of that. And then there's a very narrow strip of land which joins a much larger body called the Peloponnesus, and uh, one of the great uh, Greek cities uh, is there, Sparta. And the Spartans and Athenians uh, didn't like each other, uh, both Greek. Uh, they were diametrically opposed in virtually everything. Uh, they also probably couldn't understand each other easily. Uh, their Greek dialects were significantly different. And, um, but joining those two parts of Greece is this very narrow strip of land. It's a couple of miles, lo miles long. It's less than a mile wide. And it's known as the Isthmus, I-S-T-H-M-U-S. That's a, that's a technical word for a piece of land between two bodies of water. An Isthmus. It's known as the Isthmus of Corinth. And Corinth was on the north side of that Isthmus. 
And on the south side, we'll see this word in a minute uh, when we get to a passage in Romans, was Kenkrea, these two cities. And um, uh, it was a very important city because uh, Roman shipping uh, would tend to come from the Western Mediterranean, coming from Italy, and rather than going down around the bottom of the Peloponnesus, where the Mediterranean hit the Aegean Sea, which could be very dangerous. When you get two bodies of water colliding, uh, it can be very dangerous. So the Atlantic meeting the Pacific at the foot of South America, and I always forget whether that's the Cape of Good Horn or the Cape of Good Hope. It's the Cape of... Cape Horn. That's right. Okay, I, I know. I, I always forget which one's which. So both of those are dangerous places um, because in the one you've got the Pacific meeting the Atlantic, the other you've got the Atlantic meeting the Indian Ocean, and um, that's why the Panama Canal and the uh, Suez Canal was so such godsends for shipping when they were created. And the Isthmus of Corinth was a very busy place then because rather than going down, sailing around the, the bottom of Greece, shipping would come to Corinth. They'd unload everything, and then they'd trek it a very short distance to Cancrea, and then they'd ship out into the eastern Mediterranean. So Corinth is a port city. And uh, because of that reason, it's multicultural. Um, it's... Uh, a, a, bustling with trade. It's also a deeply immoral city. And it was uh, to live like a Corinthian, it was actually a, uh, a verb in Greek, uh, was to live an immoral lifestyle. And Corinth was just a byword for sexual immorality. And often port cities are uh, places where you get this sort of uh, world developing. And uh, it's fascinating to me that God brings Paul to this sinkhole, really, it's a sinkhole of immorality, and that's where he plants a church, right in the middle of this. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, um, uh, these are the sort of people who, if they continue in this lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God, sexually immoral, uh, 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 homosexuals, etc., 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 and such for some of you. And uh, so it's in this context that Quilla and Priscilla come there. Why do they come there? Well, they're Jewish. Uh, at least Aquila's Jewish. Uh, you'll notice uh, Luke says he's, a, he's Jewish and he's from Pontus. He doesn't have a Jewish name, but he, he's clearly specified as, a, as Jewish. Uh, Priscilla is not clearly identified. You might think automatically, oh, she's Jewish almost definitely, but Luke seems to go out of his way in the construction of the original Greek to indicate that she might not have been Jewish. Uh, neither of them have Greek uh, Jewish names. They've both got Roman names, which is interesting, because Aquila comes from Pontus, which is uh, what is now north-central Turkey, bordering the Black Sea. And uh, you have another reference to Pontus in the book of Acts, I think in, in Acts 16, and then it's also found in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's a long way from home. Um, at some point, he must have come to Rome. Um, was he converted in Pontus? Luke doesn't tell us. Is he converted now? I had always assumed that he was, but in preparation for tonight, 
I read a, a commentary and the author said uh, he possibly was not converted when he came to Corinth, in which case he got converted in Corinth by Paul. But Luke doesn't tell us that. And I think the assumption is better that he was a Christian when he came to Corinth. Aquila means eagle in Latin. It's a Roman name. And a lot of Jews took Roman names uh, because it was easier for, for the Romans to pronounce them. And um, uh, we have uh, students uh, sometimes who are Chinese or uh, Japanese will take uh, uh, Canadian names uh, because we find it easier, obviously, uh, to pronounce them. And the Jews often did the same. Paul, Paul's name. Paul changes from a Jewish name, uh, Saulos, to Paulos, Greek. And uh, likewise, obviously, this probably was the case with Aquila. It's unlikely if his parents were from Pontus, Greek-speaking area. He's Jewish. They're giving him a Latin name at birth. So at some point, he's, a, he's taken a Latin name. Maybe he came to Rome fairly early on and took a Latin name. Priscilla means ancient. And in fact, it's noteworthy that Luke calls her Priscilla because as we'll see, when Paul mentions her, he always calls her Prissa, P-R-I-S-C-A. And Priscilla is uh, what we call a diminutive. Um, we do this in English all the time. So um, my name is Michael, and uh, I don't like any of my diminutives, which are Mike. That's one of them. And uh, I've noticed sometimes you go into a store, usually car salesman, no offense if you're a car salesman, but I, I can think of a number of cases where you're just, you're just looking. And they ask your name, you know, it's Michael. I've said Michael. I haven't said Mike. And then within a few seconds, he's calling me Mike, as if this is kind of, because we tend to shorten names, right? When we're friends with somebody or we've built that relationship. And I don't like Mike. Uh, there's Mick. I prefer Mick to Mike, but I don't even like Mick. And there's Mickey. <laughs> Uh, I'm okay with Mickey, but my, my mother-in-law used to call me Mickey sometimes, and she could get away with it. But <laughs> um, We do this all the time, right? Uh, Thomas, Tom, Tommy, uh, William, Will, Willie, uh, Bill. Uh, and we tend to, what we tend to do is shorten them. In, uh, in Latin, you always lengthen them. So Pris is her real name. Priscilla is what her closer friends would call her. And so Luke obviously knew her better than Paul because Luke calls her Priscilla and Paul always calls her Prissa, which is interesting. Um, there is a very famous family in Rome called the Prissa family. And uh, it's quite possible that she was part of this family um, she could have been born into this family. It's an aristocratic family. I don't think she's an uh, aristocrat. In other words, very wealthy. Uh, but uh, everybody uh, in, in the Roman world was part of, you had your immediate family, obviously, and then you were part of a larger family uh, in which the, the head of that kind of larger family was usually an aristocrat, and he was your patron, and you would take his name. Um, so there was the Julie family, for instance, Julius Caesar was part of a large clan. I think the way we would describe it today is a, is a clan, almost like a Scottish clan. 
And the head of that clan uh, would be an aristocrat. He would serve as a patron. Remember, we talked about patrons last week. Uh, he would serve as a patron for all the members of that larger family. And some people in that family could have been uh, what they call freed men and women. They had once been slaves, or their parents had been slaves, and they had been freed. Um, but her name definitely is linked to one of the great families of Rome. And uh, was she, in, you know, did she have money, wealth? Uh, it's interesting, as we'll see, that. Uh, both Luke and Paul, when they mention the couple together, always mention her first. And we'll, I'll show you that. Um, why is that? that very, it's very unusual. This is, this is a, a man's world. You don't mention the wife first. You always mention the man first. But both Luke and Paul normally mention Priscilla first. Uh, was it because of her higher social status? Um, was it because she was the more outward going of the couple? We'll see. So Aquila and Priscilla, um, they're forced to leave Rome, probably, as I said, because they were involved in this disturbance, probably about the gospel coming into Rome. That's very important to recognize, by the way, uh, especially in light of the Reformation, where the Roman Catholic Church of the Reformation argued that the reformers were wrong because they had broken with the Church of Rome, uh, where the head of the church was uh, originally Peter, who had founded the church. And there's no indication in the New Testament Peter or Paul founded the Church of Rome. There's already a Church of Rome here, uh, because these Christians have come from Rome. They come to Corinth, and uh, Paul has been in Athens. He leaves Athens. He's by himself at this point. He has two co-workers. Silas and Timothy, who are in northern Greece, and uh, he's been run out of northern Greece, and uh, Silas and Timothy are taking care of a, a, a fledgling church at, in Thessalonica, and Paul has come down to Athens, and he doesn't get a great reception to the gospel preaching in Athens, and from there, he comes to Corinth, and uh, in the providence of God, he is led to meet with Priscilla and Aquila. And we're not told exactly how he met them. Um, did he meet them at the synagogue? Uh, Aquila's Jewish. Uh, if he's wanting to, to think about planting a church, the synagogue's the first place you want to go. Um, we're not told. Luke doesn't tell us. Uh, but he does tell us they were all tent makers. And the, the Greek word is literally tent maker, skenopoios, uh, maker of a tent. But it probably encompasses more than tents. It probably encompasses leather work as well of a variety of sorts. Um, all of the Jewish rabbis, were rec it was recommended to all Jewish rabbis that as they studied the scriptures and the Torah, etc., to become a teacher in Israel, that they also learn a manual trade. So our Lord's a carpenter. And uh, I personally think this is a, a, a great thing, uh, even for people like myself who have two left, left hands. <laughs> uh, I was trained uh, to be a painter, not art, but, you know, rolling paint, which you can't bungle. Um, and I loved it. Uh, it was when I was in my early 20s. I was at seminary. I'd use it uh, because it's a pretty, it's a bit dull. 
right? And I'd use it time to memorize Greek paradigms and Greek verbs. It was just great. And uh, finally, after, you know, I, I started off rolling. And then you get to do cutting in, which is more, more delicate. And then you get to do the kitchens and bathrooms, which in those days you worked of uh, an alkyd, oil base, which was really smelly and difficult. And, uh, and I've I, I done a bit over the years, and I think it's good uh, to have something in a manual way uh, because it reminds you of, of what a lot of people have to, how they work in the world. And it's something to, for in Paul's case to fall back on when he didn't have financial support which he often didn't because churches were small, uh, they were fledgling, and he needed, obviously, to make ends meet. And how would he do that? He would work as a tent maker, which, as I said, would involve probably a wide variety of, of leather work. Um, basically, the ancients were not into camping, okay? So don't, please don't think, you know, Greek and Romans were off having camping trips. They're, they're not. Uh, the Roman army is into tents, but there's no major Roman legions quartered at Corinth. So he's probably not making, he might have been making some tents for the Roman army, but that's probably not the major source. Um, the, the, there was a version of the Olympic Games that comes to Corinth in 51, the spring of 51 AD. Two years after Claudius has kicked Aquila and Priscilla out, they've made their way to Corinth. Within a year to a year and a half, they had a major games. It's called the Ismian Games. These ran in a cycle. There were a number of major games. We only know one now. It's the Olympic Games. But there were a number of, there's probably eight or ten of these that did a cycle. And the athletes would go around to each of them, obviously. And they would have needed tents for shade and for the athletes. So it's quite possible when Paul gets there, this games is within a year or so, he would have been making tents for this games. Uh, also, he might have been doing um, it's a port. So leather sails. Sailors needed maybe leather uh, goods in a variety of ways for belongings. Um, shoes were made out of leather. It's hard work. Um, I mean, I've never worked with leather, really. But I, I can imagine you're, you've got a needle, an awl as well. You punch holes. You have to punch them by hand. They don't have machines punching them by hand. And then you have to sew that leather together. It's going to be back-breaking work. Um, most, from what we know of leather workers, uh, up very early in the morning, working all day till it was dark. Uh, you'll notice uh, it says uh, he stayed with them and worked for they. Not Aquila, but Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila are working in this industry. And uh, we have evidence of women working at a variety of occupations. Uh, one of my favorite uh, stories in the Book of Acts is the conversion of Lydia, uh, who was a seller of purple. I'm very interested in color. And have uh, um, done a fair amount of study in the background of what that would have entailed. But basically, you've got a woman who's got a business. And uh, she doesn't appear to have a husband. He's either dead or uh, she's never married um, or maybe divorced. And uh, she's running a business, fairly profitable business, because the selling of purple clothing, the dyeing procedure, etc., was very, very, was yielded a lot of wealth. 
because uh, purple was uh, a very difficult color to get. It was gotten only one area of the, Medi of the Mediterranean, eastern Mediterranean coast, near Turkey, down into what is now Le uh, Lebanon and Israel. And it was produced by divers having to dive down, get mollusks, in which there was a little uh, sea ur uh, urchin, and you had to basically crush them. In their stomachs was a purple liquid that was secreted when they were crushed. And you need tons of these uh, to produce the color. Um, so women did work in trades. Um, and that might strike you as odd, uh, given what you might think of this world. But there were women working in trades. And uh, she's um, obviously part of the, the business. Um, the impression you get from the text is that uh, they basically employed Paul. Paul went and worked with them. They had a business, and he went and worked with them. And uh, as we'll see, they will have a large enough house. We're not told that here, but in, in uh, the text, two texts we'll see, uh, that they had a large enough house to have a house church. So they probably had uh, a storefront. So you picture this, a storefront. And uh, that was at the front of the house, and the, 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 their living quarters would be behind that storefront. Or, what is possible, um, they had a storefront, and then upstairs was a range of apartments that they would have owned. And that's where they would have lived. And it would appear Paul lived with them for a period of time and worked with them. Um, this is a world in which uh, people like to stop and have conversations, long conversations with people. It's not like our world. I noticed a picture uh, the other day on Facebook of, uh, this is in Holland, that they, in supermarkets, they've, they've got an aisle now where if you want a long conversation with the, the person checking out, there's an aisle designated. I think that's brilliant. I do. I think, I think it's brilliant, you know? I, I mean, we live in such a, you know, a very impersonal world. And um, I'm, I'm not always like that. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an anomaly to myself because I'm technically an introvert. But sometimes when I get out in public, I, I guess I get, lose my sanity a little. And I like talking to people, which I don't think is losing your sanity. And, you know, I, I like, you know, when you go through a checkout, talking to you, know, well, how was your day? And, you know, has it been busy? When did you check in? To, you know, these things. And uh, the way we, way we do th business is you don't have time to do that. But this is the ancient world where people did have time. And you can imagine Paul there working in the workshop, maybe selling at some point, and people coming, they, maybe their, their product or whatever, or, they've ordered something and it's nearly ready, and they've got time to talk. And Paul using the workshop as a place of sharing the gospel. And the workshop as a center for evangelism. You can, uh, I think I can, you can easily see that in uh, Paul's life. So that's the first text. Um, as I say, it's easily glanced over. It raises all kinds of questions uh, for us, but it does give us some interesting answers. Um, that uh, God used this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who become, from this point on, they become part of Paul's circle of friends. And as we'll see, that, that commitment uh, is even to the point of giving their lives to Paul. The other text in Acts 18 is Acts 20, 18, 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, notice the order there? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, now, if we had time, we could look at the larger structure of this text. This comes right before uh, Paul's in Ephesus, where he meets some people who also know John the Baptist. They, they knew John the Baptist's teaching. And Paul asks them, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit, which is odd because that was at the heart of John the Baptist's teaching. You know, I baptize you in water, but there's coming one who will baptize you in the Spirit. Um, and uh, Luke makes a point that Paul lays hands on them and prays for the descent of the Spirit upon their lives. Uh, here we, it's interesting, he puts these two stories right next to each other. It's, I think it's clear that Apollos is a Christian. Because Luke doesn't tell us anything like that with Apollos. He doesn't know certain things. And uh, what doesn't he know? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly, does he? He also doesn't tell us, this is, I find this a bit frustrating. He must have known, Luke must have known how the gospel came to Alexandria. He doesn't tell us. Alexandria will become one of the key places of the gospel in the next two or three hundred years. A major, major center. Luke doesn't tell us how it first came there. Now, the Alexandrians would later have their own story that it was, it was John Mark who first brought the gospel to Alexandria. But Luke doesn't tell us that. He must have known. What he tell us, tells us is this man was Apollos. He was a very eloquent speaker. Um, he knew the word of God well, by which we mean the Old Testament. Um, he had obviously heard the gospel, the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit which I think is, in the, is Luke's indication that he was a Christian. Uh, the word spirit there, it, most of our translations is probably lowercase, but it, it could easily be uppercase. Uh, literally, the word is he was boiling with the spirit. Uh, and um, he taught accurately things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And Luke, Luke does not tell us he was baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the triune name. Which again is interesting. Things that Luke doesn't tell us. Uh, was he accepted as a believer with only the baptism of John? Because John's baptism is not Christian baptism, right? It's not, it's not baptism, it's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Luke doesn't, doesn't spell this out. Um, but what he does spell out is that as Priscilla and Aquila heard him teaching, preaching in the synagogue, they detected, like, he's, there's something he doesn't have right. And rather than correct him publicly, and Priscilla, I think it, it would have been a violation of, of public order for this to have happened. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think you have women standing up in the synagogue correcting a man who's been teaching. Um, even, if, if, even if it was socially, a social custom, you could do that, that also is problematic. Um, I remember being in a situation where, I won't detail it, uh, being in a situation where a man was speaking and his wife publicly corrected him in a, in a prayer meeting Bible study. 
and you just kind of, it was one of those cases you, oh, where's the, where's the nearest door? Can I get out, please? It was difficult. It was, you, you're just, everybody's just kind of looking down, you know, and uh, he had said something and his wife piped up, um, you haven't got a clue what you're talking about. And, okay. <laughs> it was very embarrassing. Not so, I can't imagine what the man thought, but it was embarrassing for all of us. And uh, so you can imagine then, you know, this sort of situation. Um, again, I, I, I don't know enough detail about synagogue worship. Uh, was there a Q&A? I'm going to have Q&A. And by the way, if you want to interrupt me, feel free to do so. That's quite, quite cool. And for women here, it's quite cool for me to be interrupted. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm co completely copacetic with that. But it's a different culture. And this is a different venue. It's, it's not a worship setting. Uh, again, I, I, I assume all of you, well, maybe you haven't. I have been in a, a worship scenario one time. It was at uh, Trinity uh, Baptist in Burlington where uh, it was a certain brother preaching who was an invited guest and somebody in the congregation started, that's wrong. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, Allison. It was, I'm thinking, oh, this is, I, I, actually that time I wasn't embarrassed. I, I thought, this is kind of cool. It's kind of like John Wesley preaching the open air and hecklers. I thought, how is he going to respond to this? And anyway, um, uh, so if this is not that. <laughs> if you want to put your hand up, ask me questions, I'm, Completely copacetic with that. But obviously, they, they felt that they couldn't. And uh, when they, they, they asked, obviously, to, for him to come to their home, and they, they said, well, you know, on that issue, they must have said, you really don't have that right. Now, you know, if you read the scriptures on this, let's talk about this. And it's interesting that Luke mentions Priscilla. So let me ask you a question. In 1 Timothy 2.11... It says, I do not permit or do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They, Priscilla and Aquila. So, how would you explain those two? Well, teaching would tend to be more public event, where this is, would tend to be more private in person's home. Okay. So, a public private. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe it was okay because she was with her husband. Okay, so he's there. Yeah, yeah so maybe. I think the first one, the first Timothy 2, has to do with church office. I think Paul's talking about a, a ruling teaching elder. And uh, in other words, I don't think this is that sort of scenario at all. And I think it's very, it's very important to see this. Because this is a world in which a number of Jewish rabbis not only wouldn't allow a woman ever to do anything like this, they would also say a woman shouldn't even be taught. Uh, so when you, when you see, again, for us, given our culture, we don't think anything of it. When you read the story of Martha and Mary and Jesus teaching in their home and Martha and Mary, uh, at least Mar Mary just listening with rapt attention and Martha's critical of her, remember, and uh, that kind of scene is foreign to most of what we know about the rabbis. Uh, the rabbis did not normally teach women, and uh, in fact, in this is I think contrary to the Old Testament, Jewish men in Jesus's day tended to have a low view of women. 
uh, Greek men too. And uh, the Romans were different. Uh, the Egyptians were even more different. Uh, but Jewish men did not have a high view of women. This is in violation of, of the scriptures. It's in violation of the fact that God made men and women in his own image. And women are image bearers. And so our, Lord, our Lord's way of relating to women is revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary in that day. He treats them as image bearers of God in need of salvation as much as men. And uh, that undergirds these sort of passages. In fact, Luke, if you go through Luke and uh, his gospel, he has a real interest in showing stories about women, uh, how the gospel impacted their lives. That you don't find, he's got some stories you don't find in Mark, in Mark and, and uh, Matthew, for example. Okay, let me turn to a couple other passages. And uh, apart from one, these are smaller. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And maybe someone could read that when you get it. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Good, thank you. So <clears throat> here we do have an example where Aquila is mentioned first, but the other examples we'll see Pris is mentioned first. Um, this letter was written, 1 Corinthians was written from, Eph uh, from uh, Ephesus. Notice um, in Asia. Uh, the this is the Roman province of Asia, of which Ephesus is the capital city. So if you're thinking of map, this is uh, the eastern coast of Turkey, about halfway down the eastern coast of what is now modern Turkey. And uh, Ephesus still exists. There is a ruin. Um, I don't, I'm not sure, Peter, is there a city there at all? Izmir. Well, Izmir is Smyrna, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's There's a small town there. There's a small town there. But I think Ephesus is about a mile and a half now from the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's the, the, the Mediterranean in certain parts of uh, the Mediterranean has retreated. Ephesus being one. In other parts, it's swallowed up. So Alexandria, two-thirds of the classic Old Testament, old, uh, the ancient city of Alexandria is now underwater. So certain parts, it's expanded. Other parts, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, retreated, so to speak. And uh, so this is the Roman province of Asia. Paul is in Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila have crossed over with Paul to Ephesus. He's planted a church there. He's been there three years. And then he writes 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is a fascinating letter because it deals with a host of problems which are so contemporary. And uh, uh, the Corinthians have written a letter to him asking him about certain issues. He's also heard reports about problems in the church. And uh, he signs off, often he signs off with greetings from people who know the church that he's writing to. Or sometimes he's got travel plans, and here he signs off with a variety of greetings. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, because they knew Aquila and Priscilla, right, in Corinth? They'd been there. With the church in their house. So they've left. The, so get the picture. 49 AD, they're in Rome. They must have had a house. Uh, they might have had an apartment. Uh, the apartments were called insulae, uh, literally islands. 
four or five story apartment buildings made out of wood. <laughs> uh, somewhat rickety. Uh, fire hazards, major fire hazards, especially because people would cook in them. And the Romans had yet to understand how to build a chimney. So you've got people cooking and having fires in these places. It's just very, very scary. And they might have had an apartment. They might have had a house, in which case they're very well off. Either way, they leave Rome, 49. They come to Corinth. They've got a house and a shop there. And now, within three years, they're now in Ephesus. And they've got another house and presumably a shop, right? They're continuing their work as tent makers. So you think about that. Do they, did they keep all three houses? Uh, rent the other two when they're not living? Uh, did they sell the two? I, we're not told. I tend to think they kept all three because they'll come back to Ephesus and we'll see. So 49, they're in Rome. Uh, through the early 50s, they're in Corinth. And then around 52, 53, they go to Ephesus where Paul writes this letter uh, from, uh, from Ephesus to the Corinthian church. Now, four years later, 58 AD, again, we can date, we've got a number of dates that we can fix pretty clearly, and 58 AD is roughly the date for Romans. So go back to Romans 16, and maybe someone could read Romans 16, uh, verses 1 to 5. Romans 16, verses 1 to 5. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancrea, at that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Good. Yeah, yeah, verse 5. If, yeah, please. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apentis, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Okay. So this is, again, another... Uh, I love Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. It's a long list of names, if you know it. Uh, if you don't know it, when you go home, read it. And uh, ask, why is this in Holy Scripture? It was C.H. Spurgeon once said, all those lists of names in the Bible, God must have a reason why they're in there. They're there to teach us something. And I think at one level, and I, I, uh, as I mentioned, I've been teaching at Redeemer, and one of the things I emphasized, it was today, uh, one of the principles of reading history is that people... All people are important. Individuals are important. Not just all the big names, but individuals, uh, some of whom we only know their names and we know very little about them, but they're all important. People are important to God, every human being. Uh, they're important to the gospel. And every human being has a role to play and things and gifts. And uh, if, if anything, that, that's what all these lists of people's names, I think, teach us. But this is a fascinating passage. We don't have time to go into it. 
But I find it just very, very instructive. Uh, Paul, has sent, Paul is sending the letter we call Romans to Rome with Phoebe. That's why he's commending her. The bearer of this letter is this person. So she hasn't made this letter up. Uh, this is from me. I, and I trust her. She's been, a, notice at the end of it, a patron. Uh, that is, she's very wealthy. And she basically supported Paul financially and maybe others uh, who are involved in Christian work. So Paul might not have had to work uh, on this occasion. He's back in Corinth. And um, he writes this letter then. Uh, this is where he writes Romans. He writes, by the way, notice verse 22. I, I can't forbear not to mention this dear brother. Tertius, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. He is the man who Paul dictated this letter to. I mean, we never think of him. But he's the man who actually wrote those words that we read as Romans, which is such, such an important letter. Romans is at the heart of the Reformation. It was Romans that led to the conversion of John Wesley. Uh, Romans has been such a, an important letter in the history of the church. And Tertius was the man who wrote these words down. It's estimated it probably took Paul two to three months to write the letter. I mean, I'm sure you think, oh yeah, he just sat down and wrote the whole thing out. But no, it's structured, etc., etc., And he, he would have dictated it, and he'd have to have gone slowly, and maybe, uh, I don't think I like that word there. You, you can see it. it, it's, it please do not think that inspiration is like you do with a computer, right? You turn your computer on, you get a blank screen, and you just start to type. <clears throat> that is not inspiration. Inspiration is a very human procedure in which God guides the writer using his mind, his thought, his vocabulary uh, to the end product. And it is a, what we call concursive. The human author is involved, but so is God, the Holy Spirit. So much so that the, the human writer does not make an error. And you can see Paul thinking back and forth. Maybe even Tertius said, no, I think, I think this word might be better. Maybe. Um, <clears throat> anyway, Phoebe bears the letter, and then there is this long list of greetings. Greet, notice the order again, Prissa and Aquila, and notice it's not Priscilla, it's Prissa. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, if you, if you want to see this, read Paul, all of Paul's greetings in his letters. He reserves the word fellow workers for this circle of men and also a few women who have been involved in laboring with him for the expansion of the kingdom. And uh, it's a very, he's, he's giving a word that's a very high word in his mind. These are workers with him in the gospel. Um, I find it very interesting, for instance, in Philippians 2, when he's commending Timothy to the Philippian church. And he says, you know his worth, he, he labored with me, as a son, um, and the way he puts it, he, he gives the, the idea, we have labored together under Christ for the gospel. He doesn't give the impression, he labored under me. It's, it's, that's, I think, very, very important. Uh, Paul's whole idea of leadership is not one way, hey, I'm, I'm the big guy, you know, I come in, you all, I'm going to tell you all how it's going to be. It's rather his working with colleagues. 
And, um, you know, I, when you study the history of the church and you see some very prominent figures, and then you start to see about how, how did they work with others, and you start to see some of these men couldn't work with others. In my mind, that, 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 in my mind, that means that they really were not a great leader. If you can't work with other brothers and sisters, you know, and you've got to domineer over them, that, there's a problem there. And Paul, 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 you, you go, through this, go through this list afterwards and just see how he commands a variety of men and women who he knows. He's never been to Rome, but he knows about, he knows about 25 people by name in the church. Actually, there's probably three or four house churches here. One of them is the house church of Priscilla and Aquila. By the way, this is 58 AD. So remember they got kicked out in 49. Claudius kicked them all out. This is now 58, and they're back in Rome. So what happened? Well, Claudius died in 54. His wife, Agrippina, his second wife, murdered him. Uh, she found out that uh, when she married him, she was a real social climber. Um, she had been married to a guy named uh, Lucius Ahenobarbus, uh, who Roman historians remembered him for. He was driving furiously down the Appian Way, uh, going about 25 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour in his chariot, really fast. And uh, apparently some little boy was crossing the road and he just didn't slow up. He just ran him down. And that's what he was remembered for. So uh, Agrippina, that was her first husband. Their son was Nero. And uh, she marries Claudius. His first wife dies. And uh, she finds out that he intends that his son Britannicus, named after Britain, because he had invaded Britain in 43, was going to become the next Roman emperor. Well, she didn't like that. She wanted Nero to be the emperor. And when he wouldn't change his will, she poisoned him, mushrooms, uh, and did him in. So that was 54. Four years, and Claudius's law got tossed out, and the Jews could all return to Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila are back there. Uh, it would have been... At this point, the, Rome, the city is pretty normal. Within 10 years, it's, uh, it's very difficult to be a Christian in Rome. Um, there's a reign of terror going on. Uh, Nero, basically, for the first seven years of his reign, uh, he was into two things. He was into chariot racing, his dad, and he was into acting. He loved acting. So he didn't want to be the emperor. So he let Agrippina run the show. And he basically went around Italy and Greece acting in theaters. You can imagine. Well, I guess our prime minister did. <laughs> we won't draw parallels. <laughs> you can imagine that's all he did. Uh, you know. So where's our prime minister? Well, he's down in Hollywood. You know, he's been down there for the last year doing a movie, or he's on Broadway and. Or he's NASCAR racing, right? You know. Uh, finally, around 61, uh, Nero was bored, and he told Agrippina, I think I'd like to be the emperor. And she assured him, no, no, the emperor is in good hands. You do not want to be the emperor. And when she wouldn't relinquish control, he murdered her. And it became a reign of terror. But that's the future. Um, at this point, Priscilla, that's why Priscilla and Aquila are now back in Rome. And you notice they have a house church. But there's something else in here, too. Um, 
at some point, Paul doesn't tell us, they risked their necks for my sake. And you have to ask the question, would I die for another brother and sister in Christ? And I, I do fear, and I'm, I'm not sure the answer here, uh, I do fear that the way that we've constructed Christianity in North America in terms of the way we live as Christians, we don't have those relationships, you know? Um, I hope, I hope, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I, I fear that we, we live hermetically sealed lives to some degree. And... Um, do we, do we know each other well enough that we will be willing to die for each other? At some point, and Paul doesn't tell us when he expected, he obviously knows these churches, some of these churches knew exactly when that was. Some scholars have said it was in Ephesus in Acts 19 when there's a riot. If you remember, um, there's a riot. Uh, the, the silversmiths get up in arms because... People aren't buying their little statues of uh, Diana. I nearly said Lady Diana, but Diana, the goddess Diana. And um, <clears throat> they start a riot. They, there's a, there's a, a few thousand men go down to the central arena, and they're chanting for two hours. It's actually kind of funny. You know, great is the goddess Diana. Great is the you know, Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, Luke indicates half of them didn't even know why they were there. You know, they were probably hanging around the forum, and... They see this crowd going down yelling, and they joined them. And it's a great time just to yell and, you know, whatever. And, uh, and why are we here? You can imagine. I'm a, so, okay, this is great. What are we doing here? Well, I'm not sure I know. And, but obviously the ringleaders knew, and, and uh, it was very dangerous for Paul. The church, the church leaders refused to let Paul go out. He was going to go out and address them, but he probably would have been torn to, torn to bits. was it on that occasion that Aquila and Priscilla did something that put their lives in danger for Paul's sake. I don't know. But I, what I'm emphasizing here, and I'm not trying, I, I don't want to give a guilt trip, the importance of building our lives into each other's lives. And um, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can think of friends you have in the gospel who would do anything for you. And hopefully we'll never be brought to this point. But uh, what you have is a little snapshot that these men and women who worked with Paul so loved him that they were willing, if it came to it, they'd offer their life for him. Uh, I think that speaks volumes about, speaks volumes about them, but it also speaks volumes about Paul's leadership. That he was a man who loved his coworkers and they loved him. And it wasn't simply, you know, I'm the apostle, right? I had the vision of Jesus. I'm, I'm the one writing scripture. You've got to listen to me. That's, that strikes me as very antithetical to the way Paul dealt with his coworkers. That the, it, the atmosphere in which he dealt with them was an atmosphere of love. And they knew he loved them. And they loved him in return. The final verse is... Uh, Second Timothy. And this is where we kind of bid goodbye to Priscilla and Aquila. And Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. It's right at the end. By common agreement, this is Paul's last letter. Um, 
not, there's Titus after this in the scriptures and Philemon, but chronologically, this is probably his last letter that we have in scripture. And 2 Timothy 4.19, greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. And uh, Paul is in prison in Rome around 66, 67, definitely before 68, because Nero kills himself in 68. The Roman legions, the Praetorian Guard in particular, that were designed to guard the emperor, basically said, enough's enough. <laughs> and they decided to bump him off. And he killed himself before he got bumped off. And we're told his last words were, what a great actor dies in me. And uh, that, with that, he goes out of this world. Paul almost definitely was executed by the Nero's regime before he killed himself. So this is somewhere in 66, 67. The, Paul's in prison in Rome, and notice where they are. They're not in Rome now. They're back in Ephesus. So in the space of 18 years, max, 20 years, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, Ephesus. Five, they, they, they got at least five moves there. Well, Rome to Corinth. Math is never a strong point. <laughs> I shouldn't do these things. Rome to Corinth. One. One. <laughs> Corinth to Ephesus. Two. Ephesus to Rome. Three. Rome to Ephesus. Four. Four. But five cities. And uh, that's a fair amount of moving around you know, when you think about it. And uh, maybe they were only on a short visit, but it, it, you get the impression that these are men and women who have a degree of wealth, and that wealth and that business have been put at the Lord's service. And they're part of Paul's circle. They're not traveling all the time with Paul, but they're part of that circle. And uh, God uses this couple uh, to plant the gospel uh, in the Roman Empire. Well, let me ask if there are any questions, and if not, I'll... I'll give you an indication of where we will go next week. I just have a comment, Michael. Yeah. Um, you talked before of Priscilla and Aquila having these various houses and did they so If they had actually started house churches there, wouldn't they? Yes. Somebody be looking. Exactly. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good point. If they started a house church, they couldn't simply sell the house. Where would the church go necessarily? So they, had, they obviously then had to keep the houses, which means they've got a significant amount of money that they're able to buy three houses and keep them going in three different cities. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, one scholar did uh, figure out, uh, and I, I wish I'd made a note of the article. He figured out that they probably, one of their houses probably was around 3,000 square feet, which is, that's substantial. That's a very substantial house, which puts them in definitely upper middle class. They're not aristocracy. They're not part of the Roman elite. Uh, but they definitely have significant money uh, that they can do that. And that what you've said, I think, is, is germane. Um, that if they up and sold the house, then the house church is gone. Yeah. When you talk about house churches, approximately what do you think the total congregation was maybe 120, maybe? No, no um, at most. So you've got 120 in the upper room. So when they wrote to the church, whatever, 
They were really talking about a whole bunch of house churches, were they not? Yes. Yeah. In Rome, by the, by the 150s in Rome, we've probably got about 75 house churches. There is a German scholar named Peter Lampe, L-A-M-P-E, and he's done a lot of research on this. And he, he thinks he's identified some of the streets. <laughs> Uh, because some of the streets of, the, of that world still exist, right? Uh, straight, uh, straight Street in Damascus still exists, uh, where Paul was for a period of time. So he thinks he's identified some of the streets where these house churches was. So yeah, Rome probably, for much of the second century, was about 70 to 75 house churches. That's just Rome. So yeah, you're probably looking at... I mean, if you go through the Acts 16, there's probably at least three or four house churches there. You can actually see... Uh, possible places where Paul makes a break. Because you could only get... So in Rome, um, by around 250, you've got about 30,000 Christians. But there's no... There's no they, they, don't own build, they don't own buildings. They're all in house churches. So you've probably got 3,000 house churches. Significant number, yeah. I think this is one reason why you've got the house, what we call the household tables. You know, this is the way parents are to relate to children and children to parents and masters and slaves and husbands and wives because you're right in the house. And Paul and Peter are trying to help Christians. You, this is how you need to, 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 to act in your homes. And uh, uh, Allison and I, for many years, were part of a Bible study that used to meet, it was a Tuesday night uh, Bible study. That, uh, it was under the auspices of Stanley Avenue Baptist Church. And we used to meet in people's homes. And uh, we were up at one point to about 30, 35 people. And some, some of the context we went into, there was one context, if you remember, Allison, where there were dogs howling all night, and I'm trying to teach. And it was a bit of pandemonium. In, there was one house in particular, which we I didn't want to go back because I knew it was going to be pandemonium in the house. And I, the household tables would have been great for that. They should have had a, a line about, you know, if you've got dogs, take them out, uh, whatever. Anyway, um, so you can see, you can see why I think that's one reason why I think Paul is very interested in the way, uh, not only simply how uh, parents and children relate, and uh, slaves, etc., but also because you're on full display for the church. You know, people know, so is this house dysfunctional? Well, you see it. And uh, so I think that's why he orders the, in the household tables and likewise with Peter. Yeah. Uh, when you teach us about um, why Priscilla was teaching Apollos, uh, uh, should we consider the role of the woman in the real context of uh, Spartans? Because Sparta was located really close to Corinthian. And so, and they gave a lot of uh, liberties to the women. Yeah, uh, the Spartans are unlike every other Greek. So when, <laughs> whenever you say anything about the Greeks, the Spartans are always the exception. So uh, back in the classical times, all the Greeks had, were mostly democracies, except Sparta. Uh, most of the Greek men normally had other jobs, except Sparta. Every Greek male was a soldier. Uh, so whatever you say, I mean, the Spartan women did have a lot of liberties that Athenian women didn't or Corinthian women, but the Spartans are kind of the exception. And uh, I think what is important that you're probably pointing out is that when you read the New Testament uh, about women's roles in the life of the church, in the larger culture, 
you had various different ways in which men and women related to each other. So in the Greek culture, a woman, a respectable woman, would never eat a meal with a man who was not uh, a relative. Father, husband, wife, uh, uh, father, husband, son. Romans, not a problem. Neither the Romans, despite Agrippina running the empire, technically her son was the emperor. They didn't call her empress. Uh, the idea of a woman running the empire was horrifying to the Romans. Uh, but the Egyptians had Cleopatra. Very different again. So you have, when you read those, those, the, 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 those statements in the scriptures, you need to recognize that they would have been understood a bit differently in each of the different cultural contexts. Uh, the Greek situation is, is very difficult for women. Um, homosexuality was rampant among the Greek males, partly because most Greek men, there was the, the idea that a, a woman could never be your intellectual equal. And so a woman could never be your best friend. Why did you get married? Well, you got married to have legitimate children. I mean, it's very, it's, it's horrible. And so a lot of these people, when they were converted, <laughs> they're going to have to relearn a lot of stuff. And in some cases, they didn't. And they brought their pagan worldview into their Christian world. And you have these attitudes passed down. I mean, uh, I love Western history, but there's some things in there that are problematic. And one of them has been the way that men and women have related. And it goes all the way back to the Greeks. Uh, some, some, of that, some of that has been transmitted down through into our, into our cultural context. And despite Christianity being very different, uh, some of the, you read some of the early Christian fathers, uh, their attitudes towards women are not, they are not at the level of, of our Lord or Paul. And what they've done, obviously, is they've, they've been genuinely converted, but they're still thinking to some degree about their cult, in their culture's terms. So that's why noticing that Priscilla, her name's mentioned first, that's very unusual. And then Priscilla is part of that teaching context. Yeah. Uh, possible that Priscilla uh, was considered like a deaconess? Yeah, no, yeah, deaconess. Yeah, there's no indication in the text that she's a deaconess. Um, the word, the word, the word. Well, Phoebe, the word Phoebe, she's called a diakonos, the word for deacon. And there's big debates. Does that mean she was a deacon? Was she a deaconess? Was she simply a, or is that the word simply servant? Uh, now, I'm going to make a statement, and you, it's a bit controversial. I think 1 Timothy 3.11 allows for deaconesses in the church. And the Greek church eventually develops deaconesses because, remember, a man, a man, a respectable man would not be allowed into a Greek home with a woman unless he was a relative. So how are church officials ever going to go in and help. So the Greek church develops a whole role of deaconesses. But <clears throat> what's critical here is they, they have elders and then deaconesses. And so you have deacons and deaconesses. The Latin church doesn't develop deaconesses because the whole situation culturally is a bit different. But I think 1 Timothy 3.11, you can look at it later, uh, allows for uh, the, the office of deaconess. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense, women ministering to women. 
And I think we would have avoided some problems. I mean, uh, no matter how empathetic you are as a man, you're, you're just not a woman. You don't understand from a woman's world and her point of view. And it's much more helpful, I think, in some, in some cases where a woman can minister to a woman. And so I'm very much in, in favor of that. And I think 1 Timothy 3.11 supports that. Even if you don't have it officially, you have to have it in the life of the church. Whether you, even if you don't have women who are called deaconesses, you need women like Priscilla in the life of the church. And to me, uh, sometimes our churches have erred. And I, I see it among some of the younger students that I've got, men, uh, who are reacting against our culture. And they're like a pendulum swing, right? Our culture's moved very strongly in a feminist direction, and they're reacting against that. And um, talking, you know, maybe shouldn't women, women shouldn't even say anything in church. And you think, like, really? Like, get real, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's a reaction. It was Martin Luther once said, uh, the church is like a drunk on a horse. Falls off one side, gets back up, and falls off the other. And you, you see that sometimes. Any other questions before we, we have a word of prayer to close? Okay. So next week, uh, we want to talk about persecution. And um, I'm going to bring two texts, uh, one by a man named Pliny, Roman governor, um, and his account of the execution of some Christians. And he talks about torturing two deaconesses. And um, he's a very... If you didn't, if you read the rest of his letters, he's a really nice man. And I, I wrestle with Pliny because I, I like him. He's a great father, great husband. But then he's, he's remembered as the man who uh, killed a number of Christians. And then I want to talk about a woman named Perpetua and her death as a martyr. And uh, she writes, she keeps a diary in prison. And it's probably one of the longest texts we have from a woman in the Roman world. So uh, Pliny is around 110, Perpetua is around 200, 202 actually. And so we're looking about 100 years next week on the issue of persecution. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of meeting like this. We thank you for the freedom with which we can gather and the freedom that we can come into your presence in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we thank you for him, for his people down through the years, those who shared the gospel with us. And uh, a line going all the way back to this couple, uh, Quill and Priscilla, and we thank you for their help, for your Apostle Paul, and we pray that having thought about their lives might be encouraging to us in our day. And uh, we pray that your peace might be our portion this week, for Christ's sake. Amen.